again today to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are using our Immersed Bibles, and so for those of you who have your Immersed Bible, we are turning to page 459. For those of you who don't have your Immersed Bible, we are looking at Revelation chapter 3. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is the message from the one whose name is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me. So you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would send the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear. For unless you help us, unless you enlighten our understanding, unless you infuse with power by your Holy Spirit, our eyesight, our hearing ability, and our comprehension, we will leave here today like the Laodiceans with no realization. Speak to us today, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lenten season is a time of reflection, prayer, repentance. Through the Lenten season, we prepare our hearts to look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and understand our need for him as Savior. And so throughout this season, we have been looking at the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. Typically, Laodicea is identified as the lukewarm church, which indeed it was, and so Christ characterized it. Its condition as a church is untenable, 
unsustainable and unacceptable to its head. So because you are lukewarm, Jesus declared, I will spit you out of my mouth. There is more, however, to their condition, which in reality renders them as worthless to Christ. And that is why we are entitling this study, The Church That Was Worthless. As we have said, these are presented to us in the form of a chiasm. Chiasm is a literary device, and it places things in parallel with one another so that you see emphasis. And so as you look at the chiasm in which the seven churches are presented, you and I see again the churches that had the most critical needs, the churches that were the most unhealthy are Ephesus and Laodicea. The two churches, the second from the beginning and the second from the end, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the only two healthy churches. The three churches in the center, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, are unhealthy churches. In fact, they are very unhealthy. As we saw last week, Sardis was ignorantly unhealthy. They were sleepwalking, had no idea of the dangerous condition that they were in spiritually. But these churches had a few people in them who were still following the Lord. We have understood as we have looked at these churches that Jesus, the head of the church, is using these seven churches as a template to evaluate all of his churches in every era and period of church history. There were more than seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. But Jesus chose these seven, and he uses one of these seven as a template to evaluate every church who claims him as their Lord. As we can see from this chiasm and this selection of churches, most churches, and therefore most Christians who are in those churches have very serious spiritual issues. The terrible reality is that you and I don't know that we have serious spiritual issues. None of these churches thought that there was anything wrong with them. They could not see what Jesus saw. They saw themselves as okay. Jesus saw them as completely headed in the wrong direction. He said, repent. Churches with serious spiritual health issues also 
often have a few healthy Christians. But as we have seen in our study, Jesus himself says that there are very few healthy Christians. Are you spiritually sick this morning? Or are you a healthy believer? Do you know what you are? What would Jesus say that you are? What would he say that we are as a church? We have seen that Jesus uses a particular structure to these messages. He presents them as sermons. He begins with an identification of himself, identifying him in different ways to each of the churches. He then commends them. I know all the things you do. And he lists things that he finds that he can affirm. And then he follows that with a condemnation. But I have this complaint against you. He is merciful. He is gracious. And so he follows it with correction. But with warning also. Repent otherwise. He ends with an admonition that has two parts. One part is a promise to those who are victorious. The other is an admonition to make sure that you and I have ears capable of hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying. You and I will not hear what the Holy Spirit is saying unless we seek Him in prayer to give us the ability to hear. It does not come naturally. We aren't born with it. We don't acquire it by coming to church and sitting here. We only gain it through prayer, being attentive to God's Word, and obeying God's Word. I wonder how many of us today have such hearing loss that we will not hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, the letter that Jesus sends or the sermon that he preaches to the church of Laodicea is a little bit different in its structure. He begins, as he always does, with an identification. But there is no commendation. He finds nothing Nothing in that church that he can affirm. He immediately moves to his complaint, follows that with his correction, and finally, his admonition. I do not know how you and I can read this sermon this message that Jesus gave to the church at Laodicea and not have hearts that are deeply moved. This is a sad, sad letter. On the other hand, it has wonderful hope and promises for those who might have ears to hear. But the words of Jesus to this church are grievous. 
We will not be looking at the entire letter today, just the first part of it. Jesus is writing to the church that is in the city of Laodicea, about 100 miles east of Ephesus on the coast is the Lycus Valley in modern-day Turkey. That is where the church of Laodicea was located. It was at the northern end of the valley. Just a few miles away was the city of Hierapolis. And 11 miles south was the town of Colossae. We have in our Bibles a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. He also wrote one at the same time to the church of Laodicea. It did not survive. It is not included in the canon of Scripture, but he refers to it when he writes to the Colossians. And he wants the letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae, which exalts Jesus Christ as Lord and shows that you and I must immerse our lives in the life of Christ. He wants that letter read at the church of Laodicea. And he wants the letter that he wrote to Laodicea to also be read at Colossae. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter, Colossae was a declining town. It was, as many of our towns and many of our nations, depopulating. Many people moving out and moving elsewhere. At one time, it set along the highway, the trade route, and so it was very prosperous. But then came the interstate, and it went around Colossae, and no one stopped in Colossae any longer. But Colossae was important to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this little letter of about 96 verses to a group of people he had never met. And yet he was delighted with the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And he wanted to strengthen them to keep their eyes on Jesus. It was just a few years after they received the letter from the Apostle Paul that there was an earthquake in the Lycus Valley and Colossae was destroyed. That church only had a few years to live out the letter that the Apostle Paul had sent to it. Colossae was not rebuilt. Eleven miles to the north was Laodicea. Laodicea set on a major trade route. And so it was a prosperous and vibrant city. It was cosmopolitan in every way. It, too, experienced the effects and the consequences of the earthquake that destroyed Colossae. But Laodicea was a prosperous town. They declined the offer from the Roman government to help them rebuild their city. They did it on their own. They financed completely the rebuilding of every structure 
and they became bigger and better than ever before. Because they set on an intersecting trade route, east-west-north-south, in the Roman Empire, goods flowing from the east, like India and China, flowing from the south, up from the Middle East, people traveling back and forth. It was a financial center, a banking center. It was also known as a medical center. Ophthalmology was its specialty. People from all over with eye issues went to Laodicea for help. It was also known for its style. It uniquely had sheep that were black. And they produced a very expensive and luxurious wool. Woven in fabric, it was prized by people from all over the Roman Empire. And so here is Laodicea. It has wealth, it has health, and it has style. But there is one thing that it does not have. It doesn't have good water. Colossae, 11 miles to the south, sits at the foot of the mountains. And the water that pours down from the snow-capped mountains is cold and clear and refreshing. Nearby is Hierapolis, and it's known for its hot springs. And people go there to bathe for their arthritis, for their rheumatism. But Laodicea, it doesn't have a natural source of water. And so limestone pipes have been laid to bring water into Laodicea. By the time that the water arrives and people draw it out of their taps, it is lukewarm, calcium carbonate from the limestone pipes have caused the water to become foul in its taste. Everyone knows Every travel agent, every travel brochure has this warning. Don't drink the water in Laodicea. The water is bad. To Jesus, the church at Laodicea is like it's water. He can't stomach it. He must spit it out. Let's look at the words of Jesus as he identifies himself to this church because this is so deeply significant. In chapter 3 and verse 14, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message of the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
to every church, Jesus identifies himself in a particular manner. It is different from church to church. But each identification that Jesus makes is to present his credentials as the one who is authorized and qualified to evaluate that church and then to administer his judgment on the basis of what he sees and finds. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus identifies himself as the Amen with two sub-characteristics. One, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I want to ask you this morning, what have you learned about Jesus this past week? Did you learn anything new about Jesus this past week? Is he worth learning to you? I'm sure you learned something. I learned something this week. I learned a number of things, not just spiritual things. Did you learn anything about Jesus this week? The Holy Spirit wants us to learn about Jesus. That's his role. This infinite member of the Godhead is devoted to teaching you and I about Jesus. The problem is, oftentimes, we're absent from class. We're truant. We're nowhere to be found. If you and I are not learning more about Jesus, we are growing further and further away from Jesus. The vitality, the viability of our relationship with Jesus Christ depends on us knowing more about him and living on the basis of that knowledge in relationship with him. So what is the significance of these names and credentials as Jesus says to them, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the apostle John wrote, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. This Greek word, amen, that Jesus uses to identify himself, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that is the same. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16, God declares himself to be the God of amen. The God of amen, that is, the God of truth. And so when Christ identifies himself to the church of Laodicea as the amen, he is saying something that is hugely profound and significant. 
He is identifying himself with the God of Amen in the Old Testament. Just as Jesus, when he was in his ministry, would make these declarations, I am. I am the door. I am the way. I am the bread of life. And he did so using the most exclusive declaration that God had made of himself and was understood by the Jews in Exodus chapter 3. When God declared, I am that I am. Here came Jesus using the very same identification for himself and declaring that he, too, is fully divine and God. Now, when Jesus declares to them at Laodicea that he is the Amen, he is connecting himself to Isaiah 65 and declaring that he is the God of Amen that was spoken of in that passage 600 years before his coming. When he tells the church of Laodicea, I know all the things you do. He wants them to know that he really knows the truth about them. That he is the God of the Amen, the God of truth. The God who really knows. The problem with Laodicea is that they don't realize the truth about themselves. He, on the other hand, is the Amen, and he sees and knows. Here's where it gets very interesting for you and for me. Jesus used the word Amen extensively in the Gospels. Now, we don't read it in that way. In the King James, we read it as verily. In our more contemporary versions, we read it as, I tell you the truth. But Jesus is the only one in the Gospels who uses this word. And he will precede what he says with this word, verily, or as it is translated, amen. Now, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so-called because they are similar, in the synoptics, Jesus always speaks in this way. Amen, I say unto you. In the Gospel of John, he speaks in a different way. It's always with a double amen. Amen, amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Always, amen, amen. What is also interesting is that through the rest of the New Testament, while we find the word amen, and we find the word verily in our King James Version, we never find the same word used as Jesus used. Six other different Greek words are used to translate verily or amen. And after Jesus has spoken his last amen to Peter, 
after his resurrection, when he says, Amen, amen, I tell you, the time is coming when others will carry you because you won't be able to take yourself where you need to go. The next time that we see it being so used is when he says to the church at Laodicea, I am the amen. I am the one who speaks the truth. Amen means trustworthy. Most certainly, it's a confirmation that what has been said is the truth. So be it. I say something, pose it to you, and you say, Amen. You are confirming that it is the truth. You better make sure that what you're saying amen to is the truth. In this verse of Scripture from John chapter 8 and verse 58, the declaration that Jesus made to the Jews is both profound and provocative. For he is saying to them, so be it, so be it. Before Abraham even existed, I have eternally existed as the true, full God. Notice how we've rendered it here. True hyphenated full. We could say truthful. But He is the true God. And the Jews understood that He was claiming equality of God. And so they pick up stones to kill Him. You are a man saying that you are God. You're blaspheming and you deserve to die. But that's exactly what Jesus was saying. I am the I am of the Old Testament. I am the I am who appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai. I am fully God. I am true God. I am the true full God. Now, you and I must be clear about who Jesus is. Many of us have perceptions about Jesus, and we base our belief and our understanding of Jesus on our perceptions. But our perceptions about Jesus are not worth the garbage that's in your trash can. You need to know what he declares about himself. His full-of-truth presentation of Himself. Three things that I want you to understand about Jesus and how He has presented Himself. First of all, He is the true to one. Jesus was sent on a mission by the Father. He didn't come to do anything out of His own initiative. He came to represent the Father. The Father had not been represented by any of His envoys whom He had sent, not fully and completely. While they might have spoke prophetic truth, they also were human. And their presentation of the Father was hindered and limited. In fact, there is no Old Testament presentation of God as Father. It was the unique mission of Jesus 
to represent God as Father. And so, John wrote in his prologue, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time except God, the one and only, who is closest in relationship to the Father. He has made Him known. That was the mission of Jesus, to represent the Father, to speak the words of the Father, to do the works of the Father, and to reveal the heart of the Father to people. Jesus would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That is a profound statement. Could you and I say, if you have seen me, you have seen God? It would sound arrogant for you and I to say so, wouldn't it? And yet, we are called to be his representatives to this world. So he is true too. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that he is the exact representation of the Father. The invisible God made visible, accurate in every detail. He is also truthful speaking. In John chapter 12, we read these words. Jesus shouted, to the crowds. If you trust me, you are not trusting only me, but the God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. I hope these words don't just roll on through your mind. These are some of the most profound words that you and I can read in Scripture. Jesus is saying that if you don't listen to me, God has nothing else to say to you. If you don't look at me, God has nothing else to show you. I am the Father's only words. I am the Father's only representation. If you don't know me, you don't know God. He is truthful speaking. And thirdly, he is truthful doing. Now, Jesus came as our substitute. As the psalmist declared, no man can pay the ransom for the life of another, it is too costly. The only one who could ransom us from sin was God himself, infinite in his righteousness and his merit. And so God sent his son. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. As man... As a human, he was subject to every temptation and trial that afflicts you and I. And thus he could be our substitute. As God, he was infinite in his righteousness. 
the only sufficient payment for our sin. Now, as you and I know, Jesus did not just walk through life enjoying his days. The scripture said that he was subject to every temptation that you and I are subject to. It wasn't just in the wilderness when he was fasting and praying that he was tempted by the devil. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He faced difficulties, harassment that would cause you and I to respond in such anger that we would sin. When Jesus drank the cup that he asked the Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, it contained every sin of every human being in the history of humanity. Everything that you and I see happening in Ukraine was in that cup. Everything that happened in Mali last week like what is happening in Ukraine, because the Wagner Group is also operating in Mali. It was in that cup. Every atrocious thing, every horrible thing in this world was in that cup. The cup of sin. Jesus had to surrender himself to the Father. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was only possible for Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to keep himself unblemished so that he would be a perfect sacrifice for you and for me. It was hard work to be our Savior. Jesus undertook the mission. Jesus kept himself from sin so that he could present himself as a perfect and flawless sacrifice, one whose righteousness would exceed the level of our unrighteousness, pay the payment for our sins. Now, why do we die? Why do we die? It's because we get old? Because something bad happens? No, we die. Death exists because of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus went to the cross as our salvation. If he is not perfect, he stays in the grave. Because the soul that sins will surely die. But did Jesus stay in the grave? No. He rose again. Why? Because he was sinless. Jesus said to the Father, I brought glory to you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. In 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, great is the mystery of godliness. And one of the things that he declares is that Christ was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? We have understanding when we read the beginning of his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, he said, Jesus Christ, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. Next Sunday, you and I are going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. What are we celebrating? The fact that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. There was nothing to condemn him. And his resurrection is the validation, the vindication, and the ultimate affirmation of the Father that he is indeed truthful doing. Vindicated by the Holy Spirit through the resurrection from the dead. So, what does all of this say to us? Why is it so important that you and I understand that Jesus is true to, truthful speaking, and truthful doing? Jesus further substantiated his identity as the amen with two other descriptions. Number one, I am the faithful and true witness. We read those words in chapter 1 and verse 5. They're also repeated again in chapter 19 and verse 11. When Jesus rides forth to do battle with the kings and the armies of the earth, he has two names written upon his very being, faithful and true. In chapter 21 and verse 5, he will again declare his words are trustworthy because of the words of the one who is faithful and true. Now, the second reference, the beginning of God's new creation, is a profound reference. We referenced earlier Isaiah 65 and verse 16, where God presents himself as the God of amen. But there is more than what we just read here. We read in Isaiah 65, verse 15, beginning with the last part, to his servants he will give another name. If you have been reading these letters, you have read that Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will give a new name. To him who overcomes, I will give a new name. And then God went on to say, Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. When Jesus declares himself to be 
the beginning of God's new creation, he is declaring himself to be the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah 65 as the God of Amen. That I will give to people a new name. That because of me, the former things will be forgotten. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Revelation 21, we hear these words spoken. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus Christ is the true and faithful witness. I want you to understand something here. When Jesus speaks, the Father and the Spirit are in agreement with him. They are of one mind. Jesus speaks only what the Father tells him to say. The Spirit is the one who affirms every word of Jesus. You and I will never hear anything from God that we also do not hear from Jesus. Their words will never be any different. There will never be a divided message coming from them. You and I can't read one of these letters and say, well, I don't think that applies to me. And hope that when we stand before God, we will hear something different than what Jesus had to say. They are in perfect agreement with one another. He is the faithful and true witness. For those of us who are truly walking in relationship with Jesus Christ, those are wonderful words. The problem with the church of Laodicea was they were not who they were supposed to be, and who they were was something that they could not see and that they would never have chosen for themselves. Jesus saw them as they really are. And let you and I understand today that how we see ourselves is probably not how God sees us. And how Jesus sees us is how we truly are, not how we think we are in our own eyes. The tragedy about the church of Laodicea 
and one of a number of things that made them worthless so that Jesus was going to spit them out of his mouth was that while he was the true and the faithful representation of God, they were not true and faithful representations of Christ. And he could not and would not tolerate their condition. Are you a true and faithful witness of Jesus Christ? Crystal, have you been baptized? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? If your life was recorded this past week, everything that you did, could it be handed to a Muslim teenager who wants to follow Jesus Christ and say, just watch and listen to everything that Crystal did, and you'll know what you need to do to follow Jesus Christ. Chizzy, you were baptized just a few months ago. Could your week have been recorded on camera? Everything you said, everything that you did, and anyone looking at it would understand that you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ and your witness is true. How much did you read your Bible? How much time did you spend in prayer? How often were you with the body of Christ? What did you do to build others up in their faith in Christ? All of these things are part of our faithful and true witness. And their lives should replicate Jesus in such a way that we can say with the Apostle Paul, you can follow me as I follow Christ. Again, the church at Laodicea was worthless. They did not have a faithful and a true witness of the one who is the faithful and true witness. May you and I have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to each of us. May we hear the words that he spoke to the church of Laodicea. I love you and so I'm disciplining you. Accept my discipline. Be diligent and turn. Here I am. I am standing at the door. How terrible. Jesus was on the outside of the door of that church. And the whole time that they were gathered together, they thought that he was with them. In reality, he was outside. Their hearts were an inhospitable environment for him. Where do you stand today? Where do I stand? You and I must hear the words of Jesus. He is the faithful and true witness. He says what really is. He knows what truly is. And he alone has the words that will enable us to be who we must be in order to stand before him. Amen. Lord Jesus, 
you know me in ways that I don't know myself. You know all things. You know each of us in a way that we cannot see ourselves. You know whether we are truly devoted to you, whether we love you with all of our hearts. You know whether we are truly following you or whether we are satisfied with no more of you than we've already experienced. Lord Jesus, you know whether we are ready for your return. You know whether we were looking for your return this week or whether we were just going through life with no thought at all that you are coming back, that we must be ready, that we must be diligent in doing your will and seeking you. You know the quality of our love for you, whether we really love you with all of our hearts or whether there are a lot of other things we love that you hate. You know whether or not we are endeavoring to draw closer to you, to know more about you. Whether we are responding to your invitation to sit down with you and have fellowship together. You know the truth about us. And so we invite you to speak to us by the Holy Spirit. We invite you to tell us what we don't want to hear, what we need to hear. We invite you to discipline us, to correct us, so that we do not go on in ignorance, finding ourselves in a place where you cannot stand us any longer, because we are not at all the new creation that you came to accomplish. Speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. May we be yielded to you and allow you to change us and work within us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. 